0: Welcome to The Higher Edge, a podcast for the brightest minds in higher education to hear from the change makers and rule breakers that are driving meaningful, impactful change for colleges and universities across the country. From improving operations to supporting student success, these are the stories that give you The Higher Edge. And now, your host, Brendan Aldridge.
1: Hey, everyone, and welcome to The Higher Edge. I'm Brendan Aldrich, and I'm here today with Joe Kahn, who is the co-director of the Civic Engagement Research Group at the University of California, Riverside. He's also the author of Reframing Educational Policy, Democracy, Community, and the Individual, and has really spent his career focused on school reform and civic engagement. Uh, Lilith Sean Bose wrote that he, quote, Often delves into big ideas in his research, he studies government policy, the purpose of education, youth engagement, and digital media, and in this fast-changing world, often all of these at the same time. Joe is also the inaugural Ted and Joe Dutton Endowed Presidential Chair for Education Policy and Politics at UC Riverside, and I'm so happy to have him on the studio with us today. Joe, welcome, and thanks for joining us here on The Higher Edge.
2: Oh, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm looking forward to our conversation.
1: Hey, Joe, I wonder if you might start us off with a little background information on your experience in your career.
2: I started off after college teaching high school at a big public high school in New York City uh, where I taught social studies. And then after that, went to graduate school, really with the desire to focus on how can we strengthen and improve schools and probably urban schools in particular with a real interest in what does it mean to actually prepare young people for democracy and how can we support that. And that's been the main focus of my work since then. More recently, say starting about 10 years ago, I was focusing a lot more on young people's engagement with digital media because it's so clear that that's going to be so important and is now so important in the ways in which young people and frankly all of us participate in the civic and political process. I've also started thinking uh, a good bit about young people, not just in high school, but also in higher education. And I think it's something that, is, that we often do think about and need to think more about. What are the goals that people and young people have in higher education? And how do we connect that to civic priorities? So for example, it's true that many people are highly focused, understandably, on getting ready for the world of work and for the career uh, that they want to develop. And it's also true that many uh, young people want to figure out a way uh, to participate in society that has meaning for them, which often includes civic and political engagement. So civics becomes a real motivation for people, not only as they figure out what kind of career they want, but also as they think about the other roles they want to play in, in society. And so I think it becomes important then both in, in say, high school and in college or, or uh, higher ed experiences... To be thinking about what are the opportunities we're providing for young people, both in the curriculum and extracurricularly, that can help them think about uh, ways in which they can uh, contribute to the community that are powerful.
1: And I know that in terms of your own motivation, there's a, a Winston Churchill quote that you had shared with me.
2: Oh, yeah. So well, one of the things that I think is important, especially today, because I think, you know, we're all conscious that our democracy does not always perform in ways that thrill us, right? It's frustrating. It, it, uh, it is not ideal. Uh, and it doesn't always perfectly solve the problems that we're facing. And so I often start conversations with some of my students by noting Winston Churchill's quote, democracy is the worst form of government, uh, except when compared to all the alternatives. And, and the point that I think Churchill is making is it's not that democracy is perfect, or that we can just say, well, this is what people voted for, therefore it was the right decision. It's more that any other system, a military dictatorship, a king, uh, an authoritarian ruler, those things are worse. And that what we really have to do, therefore, is help educate young people and and frankly also work with adults sometimes to try to figure out how can we create systems that work better uh, so that we get uh, we get more of the benefits from our democratic institutions to help strengthen our society.
1: You know, which is tremendously important these days. I mean, I know the topic of how polarized we become as a society has come up a, a number of times, even with different guests on our show.
2: Yeah, there's no doubt that polarization, especially polarization linked to political parties, has increased dramatically o- over the last several decades, and uh, it it it's important to say a little bit about what we. I think mean by polarization in order to um in order to understand what its what its risks are there's nothing inherently bad about people having strong views that make them you know quite a bit different in their views than other people but what we're seeing is an increase in what's often called affective polarization where it's not just that your views differ from another group of people It's that you simultaneously believe the other group is bad or evil and that you, uh, you know, have a unique lock on virtue. And if you have, uh, which increasingly we have in our society, separate camps that both believe that, it becomes much harder for us as a whole society to operate productively and not to fall into dysfunction where we're, we're both so... Fearful of losing uh, and often uh, comfortable uh, exerting pressure when we win in ways that are inconsistent with democratic values. So, we're in addition to seeing uh, affective polarization increase, we're actually also seeing, um, and this is true both for young people and adults, increased comfort with anti democratic action. Uh, because people are so fearful of the other side, and I think that's one of that is a big both threat to our society broadly and it it makes it much harder for democratic institutions to deliver for all of us
1: well I think that 's an important distinction that you talk about it's it 's not partisanship, and I know sometimes we talk about partisanship and people think of it as a bad thing, but that 's really more. Uh, a a function of the polarization that you were just discussing. Exactly.
2: Believing, you know, in fact, we have have sort of two stances, right? One is that you often, uh, there are many young people, for example, who don't particularly think about civic and political life and don't say, for example, have a strong opinion about given policy issues or a political party. There's nothing ideal about that um it, it's you know it's not everybody's obligation to be uh as focused on politics and policy as I am but uh but it is healthy for people to think about these issues have opinions and if their opinions take them to a particular political party or a strongly held view that's fine what's key is that we don't lose the ability uh to have conversation across difference to learn from people who think differently and to understand and respect a wide range of, view, of views, because in many respects, that's how society moves forward. And it's certainly how education works, right? That, that if we have to be able to bring up new ideas, to critique one another's ideas without critiquing one another as people. And I think sometimes what is happening with the growth in affective polarization is that we end up critiquing other people as people. Uh, rather than solely focused on the say policy prescriptions they put forward,
1: really interesting. you know, staying on that subject for just a moment, and then really looking at the world of higher education. I know there's a number of articles that discuss the the low representation of Republicans that are working in higher education as compared to Democrats. Uh, in January of 2020, for example, the National Association of Scholars, which I should point out is a nonprofit, politically conservative advocacy organization with an interest in education, released a study on the political leanings of professors in American universities that showed across 12,000 universities, only about 6% of the professors were registered as Republicans. Now, while those specific numbers could be challenged, I think there's probably a widespread agreement that most people working in the field can lean more left what kind of challenge does that create when it comes to addressing partisanship and polarization among students?
2: Well, I think, I think it's a, it is an important, and I don't know what the exact, you know, as you say, it's not easy always to know the exact numbers for these kinds of things, but there's no doubt that university professors are more often Democrats than Republicans and that it varies to some degree by school, by region, by even the academic discipline with which people are Affiliated, A university, I mean, you know, right in, in the center of that word is the word universe, right? We want young people to have opportunities to hear about everything. And there's always a risk when you have uh, relatively homogenous um, groupings, that it will limit out and in that sense, shortchange students from hearing varied perspectives it is true that by and large, universities don't end up shifting the political views of students all that much, certainly not through the courses that are taught. And that does indicate that to a significant degree, um, universities are conscious of the need to uh, create an environment for exploring ideas rather than telling people what to think. But there are issues around that. And, and I think it's something that increasingly in our society, we have to watch out for, right? In, in K-12, it's particularly important because students in K-12 experiences don't have the opportunity to decide to be there. They're told they need to be there and they don't have a choice about uh, taking certain courses. So it's fundamentally important that we emphasize helping students think about issues rather than telling them what to think about issues. I think within higher ed, there's a little bit more space because students are often choosing what they study, they're choosing their professors and the like, and there probably is some self selection that goes on there. Um, All that said, I think in the higher ed institution, it becomes vital that we protect uh, space for uh, exposure to ideas. And that we make sure that we're, we're still helping students wrestle with varied perspectives, not telling them what perspective to take.
1: Hey, for everyone listening, hang tight. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and we'll be back in just one minute.
0: All colleges and universities face challenges in advancing the mission of higher education. Some problems impeding your progress are known, but others are invisible, hidden, impossible to address. Invoke Learning changes everything. Built on revolutionary technology that's light years beyond anything you've seen yet, our leading edge data platforms and deep analytic solutions give institutions of higher education some real life superpowers to support the entire student journey. Ask questions you never imagined could be answered. Get unprecedented insights that lead to mission impacting action What's holding you back today from taking your mission further tomorrow? Find out and discover just how far you can go. Contact Invoke Learning at www.invokelearning.com. Invoke Learning. This is education empowered.
1: Thanks so much for listening to our sponsor. Let's get back to the show. It's interesting when you talk about K-12. through You know, there's a lot of discussion around... Uh, science, technology, engineering, and math, or or STEM courses, and their role in preparing students to then advance and work in society. How does civic education kind of fit into that framework? How does it compare with the focus to STEM?
2: So there are a couple ways to think about this. And I think um, uh, the first, which which I think... You know, civic educators are very focused on is the fact that a great deal of the resources are headed towards STEM. Um, and as a result, uh, it's harder to get the support that we need in k twelve education for um, uh, history and social studies, for civic engagement and the like. Um, there are other areas like the arts that often sometimes get marginalized in that same way. Um, You know, there's something over 50 times. Now, the federal government isn't a major funder of K-12 education, but they spend something like 50 times the money on STEM as they do on history and civics. So, you know, that's a big issue. The second is that uh, they've done interesting studies that show students who take a lot of STEM courses... Think much less about civics and democracy than other students, and that's also a problem because in a democracy, everybody counts everybody's view counts, and so we have to make sure that even uh, students who are studying science technology you know math what what have you are also thinking about the uh, broader societal issues as well as about the role of technology in society. I think we've all been captivated, concerned, excited, depending on how you respond to such things by the, you know, the new opportunities with AI. But there's no doubt that those chatbots are not only going to, you know, influence the way in which we, say, make hotel reservations. They're also going to have profound, profound impact on the way in which, uh, Democracies function, the ways in which people get information, whether they can count on the information being accurate, etc. So we have to be thinking, in that case and in many others, about the relationship between science and society.
1: There was a time not so long ago when most people consumed news from one of the three major networks ABC, NBC, or CBS. Uh, now, cable television brought the ability to have hundreds, if not thousands, of channels that focused on different vertical niches like comedy, music, drama, game shows, etc. But as the number of those options grew, each of those channels had to fight harder for their audience, causing many of them to become more and more polarized within their areas. Has the explosion of digital media, you're mentioning the, the AI and chatbots, uh, changed, you think, the way people engage civically or, or even limited their ability to do so?
2: Yeah, there's no doubt that it's had a major influence, Um, and and sometimes people say, you know, is is AI good for democracy? Is digital media good for democracy? I I don't think that's quite the right the quite the right question. It's these things are like electricity; they're like uh, you know the invention of fire. You don't say, was that they change They change the way democracy operates. They don't uh, necessarily change it positively or negatively. In fact, both things can be happening. Um, I think what we're seeing is, however, the growth of digital platforms, as you're saying, making it far easier both for people to find a niche with respect to politics or to avoid politics altogether. So... There are some people now who, you know, are are folk where you used to only be able to get your news between six and seven. Now there are people who can get news twenty four hours a day, and that's what they focus on. And there are other people who can now easily avoid the news because it used to be, as you said, that the three major networks were what you had to watch, and they were all doing news at the dinner hour. This creates a bunch of different uh, situations for different people. It may well promote polarization because, for example, liberals can watch liberal-leaning media and conservatives can watch conservative-leaning media. And there are plenty of studies that show that the portraits of the world provided by those different organizations or institutions are really radically different. And some of the opportunities for interaction and for a common view of reality are getting harder and harder to find. So I think, again, this is a place where education needs to play a big role. It needs to help uh, young people develop a taste, not just for hearing points of view that align with their own, but for exploring ideas, being exposed to new ideas, because the market will provide those opportunities if there's a market for that, right? And, And I think Uh, What we found, for example, in K-12 education is that simply when teachers give assignments like find several different perspectives on this issue by going online, that when you teach kids how to find different perspectives, they actually become more likely to do that in their discretionary time. So I think it's something that we can, in a sense, educate towards that could help us deal with some of the realities of the ways in which, for example, cable TV or uh, digital platforms have segregated members of, of the community.
1: And you're actually doing a, a lot of interesting work, I think, with students that are in that K-12 space. I wonder if you can share some some information about that as well.
2: I would love to. So, for example, I was just in a, in a classroom in Riverside yesterday with a program that we call connecting classrooms to congress and what what we think is needed and we're not the only ones who think this this is a long standing vision of best practice is we need to give young people and i would say this is true for higher ed as well opportunities to learn in depth about issues that they may care about and then to think about what are policy options and how could we go about change so in this case, what we've done is we've created a three-week curriculum that we're piloting uh, all around the country, in Florida, in Ohio, in Illinois, and in California, where students study an issue in depth for uh, about 10 or 12 class periods. And, then they have a, a, and, and they're asked not just to study it, but to look at national policies that might address the issue. And then they have an interaction with their sitting member of Congress, where they can ask that member uh, questions about that member's position, and maybe also share some of their own perspectives on what should be done. I was visiting a classroom where the students were, you know, um, having a discussion actually about climate change, which is not surprising. It's something that a lot of, of young people, as well as all of us, are thinking about it. And we see in that classroom, as you would expect, because students have had an opportunity to read a wide range of uh, views and policy prescriptions, that the students also have differing perspectives on it, that they were exploring and sort of pushing and pulling one another on. And they're gearing up for, uh, later this week, meeting with their member of Congress and developing questions they want to ask that member of Congress. So it's an effort to really try to develop in young people uh, both a deeper knowledge of how to think about a complex societal issue, but also to give them a sense of hopefully agency and opportunity to uh, express their views and push for the kinds of changes they value.
1: Really very cool. Hey, Joe, I mentioned also in the introduction that you are currently the inaugural Ted and Joe Dutton endowed presidential chair for education policy and politics at UC Riverside. Now, many people may not know what an endowed chair is or does. And I wonder if you might talk a little bit about that.
2: The notion of an endowed chair is that there is an endowment tied specifically to that academic position. So just as a university has an endowment that supports the overall university. Uh, in this case, there is a, uh, a set of monies that um, are tied to the person who gets hired for that chair. And those uh, funds um, you know, are, are structured to last forever. So one, uh, if the, the person who holds the chair gets the payout from that year, from that endowment. Um, and that amount of money can be used to support research and teaching connected with what that professor is doing. And so in my case, there's uh, some money that allows me to engage in some research and to support some doctoral students uh, with their education, in addition to funds that I may raise through through foundations or the federal government. And it's really an incredible thing because it's recurring. And the funds are quite flexible. So while there are some things like sending a graduate student to a conference that are sometimes hard to raise money for from another source, it's something that I can use the endowed funds to do to support a graduate student who's working with me. And that kind of flexibility is, is obviously very valuable.
1: And it's great, like you mentioned, because it is recurring because you're not actually spending the principal, but the interest off the principal so that it can keep going.
2: I mean, certainly in some institutions, they're endowed chairs that yeah have lasted well over 100 years.
1: Which makes this very different from, say, like a, a chair for the math department.
2: Yes, definitely. So the particular chair that I hold is focused on educational policy and politics. And so uh, what that means is, you know, I was hired into that chair because that's my research interest and the focus and the ways in which I use the funds from the chair are to support that uh, activity, much as a chair in the math department would be, would be used to support uh, work in mathematics. And I think one thing that that allows is, for example, for a donor to say, you know, I think educational policy is super important and I want to make, sh- you know, I want to target my giving in a way that supports that. We have chairs, for example, uh, that support students with special needs. Um, And there are obviously chairs in other departments, you know, like astronomy or sociology that focus on on other other goals.
1: Which is really fascinating. You know, Joe, you've got such an intriguing background. I, I wonder if there might be a story you have that you could share with our listeners about something that maybe helped you see something in a different way or something that might help give them the higher edge.
2: I guess I'd say that like many people, I'm sometimes blind to the ways in which other people may think about the things I think about. Right. And so when I was beginning teaching, I was doing work um, related to supporting young people's engagement in in civics in the same way I'm doing now. And I ran something called the Institute for Civic Leadership. And what we did was we took 15 students um, from a wide range of backgrounds and gave them an intensive one semester sort of all inclusive liberal arts experience related to civics. They had an internship in the field where they worked with uh, an organization or a political group, depending on their interest, they studied uh, social sciences of civic engagement, they studied the humanities of civic engagement, so they you know read novels and the like that addressed uh, issues of democracy and politics and I think because that was the focus that I assumed that the students who came would all be interested in civic and political life and would be committed. Uh, to democracy, and early on, uh, I remember a student saying to me, "I don't want to be involved in politics." And I I just looked back at her and I said, "But you just signed up for four courses. The entire semester is all about this." And as we explored it, we found other students in the class also said, "I don't want to be involved in politics." And what I realized was that they were attaching a meaning to politics that was very different than the meaning I was attaching to it. They were understanding politics as what they saw as corrupt political fights that they wanted nothing to do with, that they wanted to be part of empowering people. They wanted to be part of helping people, but they had no interest in, you know, what we might think of as the uh, messy side of electoral politics. I also had students saying, uh, I don't think democracy is a good idea, which again sort of set me back on my heels and didn't quite know how to respond. And I think, again, these were thoughtful students who were raising legitimate concerns about whether or not a democratic society was actually behaving ethically and about whether or not democracy over its history in the U.S. had delivered on a whole range of priorities. The kinds of comments that I was hearing uh, are probably even more common today uh, than they would have been 20 years ago. And I think that what it forced me to do was to realize that a lot of the assumptions I had growing up and the meanings I decided to assign to words that I use, uh weren't the same meanings that the students I was teaching had. And so it was really important uh, for me to understand the meanings they were bringing to these words and the thoughts they had so that we could engage in a conversation that explored that and could, in some cases, they were pushing my thinking, say, about politics and democracy, but I also then had an opportunity to push their thinking because, for example, while it's true that sometimes politics is messy and conflictual, some of the best conversations I have with students who say that are, what alternative would you propose? And how should we work through this? And that often leads to a really good conversation about what are the steps we can take to uh, push for a better kind of politics or better ways of resolving issues around which people have have very uh, strong and differing opinions. Wow, really, really interesting.
1: And so important to remember that government and civic engagement is really about all of us together, as opposed to something that's happening, you know, with, with people in the government. Definitely. Hey, for our listeners, we've been talking with Joe Kahn, co-director of Civic Engagement Research Group and the inaugural Ted and Joe Dutton endowed presidential chair for education policy and politics at the University of California, Riverside. Hey, Joe, if listeners would like to reach out to you with questions about today's episode or, or to continue the conversation, what's the best way for them to contact you?
2: I I think definitely, I'm almost always on email, so just J-K-A-H-N-E at UCR.edu.
1: Perfect. And are there any uh, links that you want them to go to for websites for the groups that you're participating in or for uh, UCR or anything along those lines?
2: Pretty much everything we do is on our Civic Engagement Research Group website, and the address for that is just civicsurvey.org.
1: Perfect. Joe, hey, it's been fantastic having you on the show. Thanks for coming on and being guest with us here on The Higher Edge. Well, thank you.
2: It's been wonderful to have a chance to chat with you.
1: And for everyone listening, I'm Brendan Aldrich, and we'll talk soon.
0: Thanks for listening to The Higher Edge. For more, subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform, leave us a review if you loved the show, and be sure to connect with Brendan on LinkedIn. Know someone who's making big changes at their higher ed institution that belongs on this podcast? Drop us a line at podcasts at thehigheredge.com. The Higher Edge is sponsored by Invoke Learning in partnership with Westport Studios. Views and opinions expressed by individuals during the podcast are their own. See how Invoke Learning is empowering higher education at invokelearning.com.